Hello, we're pleased you've been able to tune in to Finding Truth Matters with Dr. Andrew Corbett. Welcome to the program. We can be absolutely certain that God is always good. He is always good. He never does wrong. He can never do wrong. Everything he does is for a good reason. In recent weeks, Dr. Corbett has been exploring the forces of darkness and they are not a crowd you want to get in with. Whether we fully appreciate it or even want to know about it or not, the forces of darkness exist in the spiritual realm and as their title suggests, they are not interested in our good. This week is part six of the Darkness series and we're going to continue to explore the population of the heavenly realm in greater detail with our attention this week on the bad guys. Let's join Dr. Corbett now for the next instalment in the Darkness series, The Origin of the Forces of Darkness. Hello and welcome again. We are looking at our Darkness series. This is nearly uh, nearly at the end of the series. This is the second last one we'll be doing in this series, but I hope that it becomes a part of your thinking. And it's my hope as pastor of this church that you really get what we're saying here because we don't want anyone living in an unreasonable fear of the powers of darkness. So there's something that we need to have a look at now. It, it may sound like we're focusing on the, the enemy and what he can do. And I'm mindful that C.S. Lewis said that there are two great errors when it comes to the study of evil. One is that we focus too much on the devil and the other evil or the other extreme of that is that he said is that we completely dismiss him and ignore him. And of course, he ended up writing the book Screwtape Letters to give sort of, I guess, those people on the ignore and dismiss end of the spectrum maybe a bit of a perspective into the demonic and the, the evil realm of the evil one. And that will be my, pref, my preferred description of the one that's known as Satan and the devil. Uh, I will not be using the term Lucifer, partly because it's actually not in the Bible. It comes more from Milton's paradise than it does from the teaching of Scripture. So if you can bear with me as we have a look at this, because what you're going to hear is not something you've probably heard before about where the devil came from, where demons come from, what is this thing that the Apostle Paul refers to when he talks about principalities and powers, what's all that about? So let's pray, and then we're going to open God's Word and go on a little expedition through the Scriptures and see what God's Word says about this. So let's pray. Father, I pray as we gather now to give heed to your Word you would speak to us. May we hear your voice. And I pray, Lord, that you open our eyes and give us eyes to see what's in your word. Help me as your servant not to put or force things into your word, but help me to draw things out of your word that you have said. And so, Father, I pray in Jesus' name, speak to all who are listening to me now in this room, who are listening right now over the internet, who are listening right now by radio. May you touch them wherever they are, in their lounge room, their kitchen or their car, wherever it might be, may they hear your voice through the preaching of your word, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So I've called this the origin of the forces of darkness, and I think we really need to understand this with the pastoral motive that this is not something that I want to induce any fear in fact, I want to do the opposite. I want to give you great confidence 
that you as a follower of Christ can live confidently without being in fear of the forces of darkness. So this is about the origin of the forces of darkness, explaining how some of the creatures of the heavenly realm went dark. Now, at this point, giving you that subtitle, some of you are going to go, Amen, I know the story, I've got it. And I'm going to probably challenge whatever you think that story is as we look at the Word of God and go on this excursion through the Word. To do that, mindful that I don't want this to sound like I'm focusing on Satan or the devil or the evil one at all. And I want to immediately draw our attention to God. And I think we we need to understand something about God because, indeed, there are several unique things about God. There are things that that God possesses, God exhibits, they, they are a part of who God is that are absolutely unique. These are uniquely divine attributes. The first one, and these aren't necessarily in any order, but I just want to point out, these are exclusive to God. If any being has any of these attributes, they are God. So the first one is eternality. And by that we mean only God is eternal. He has had no beginning, he has always been, and will have no end. He is the great, as he describes himself to Moses, the great I am. Secondly, apart, so we have eternality, eternal. God has always been, he is the eternal. Secondly, omnipotence. So when we start a word with that prefix, omni, it means all. So Potence means power, so we could say only God is omnipotent. He has all power. He is all-powerful. He is the great El Shaddai, the great mighty one, it says in the Old Testament. Thirdly, God is omniscient, or sorry, yeah, omniscient. Omniscient means, it comes from that word omni again, all, and it looks like the word science when we say he has omniscience. The, the science part of that word is the old word for knowledge. So only God is omniscient. He knows everything. He is all-knowing. He not only knows every concrete fact, he knows every abstract concept. In fact, we will find in the Bible that God is the master at communicating in abstract Concepts, in other words, things that are perhaps feelings or thoughts or imagination, um, figures of imagination, and so on. He can communicate in that in that way. So he is omniscient. He not only knows everything we've done. He not only knows every fact about everything. He also knows every hypothetical fact. Those are things that you could do. He knows that. He knows what you will do. And he knows what you've done. This is what we mean by God is omniscient. The next fact is he is omnipresent. He has omnipresence. Only God is omnipresent. He inhabits all of creation, but is distinct from creation. So at this point, there may be some people who are what are called pantheists who would hear me say, God inhabits all of creation. At that point, they'd go, amen, absolutely, yes, sir. He, is, he inhabits all of creation because he is creation. But I'm actually pointing out he inhabits all of creation, 
In other words, he is everywhere, but he is distinct from creation. Very important point. This is the biblical claim about God. He is not the creation. He is the creator. Now, there's some uniquely divine abilities. I just said God is the creator. To create something from nothing, the, the Latin term, if you'll forgive the combination of English and Latin, he, he has the ability to create ex nihilo. Ex nihilo means out of nothing. Only God can create something from nothing. And you may have heard of the scientists who said, God, we don't need you. We, we, we figured out with our superior brains how we can actually do life now without you. We've figured out everything. We can even make life now, these scientists claim to God. And God said, okay, let's have a contest. Let's see how you can do it. And they, they said, sure. All right, what we're going to do, we're going to take this bit of dirt. And God said, ah, uh, 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 not so fast. Get your own dirt. I made that. Now, of course, the joke is that people can't create something out of nothing. In fact, nothing can create something out of nothing. It's just not possible. So only God has the ability to create something where there was previously nothing. That's the first ability of God. The second ability of God we read about in Mark chapter 2 and verse 7 when Jesus forgives someone of their sins and the scribes and Pharisees remark in Mark chapter 2 verse 7, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And they're right. Only God can forgive sin. So we have this ability that is exclusive to God and that is the absolution of sins. That means only God can absolve someone of their sins, which results in them being forgiven, pardoned, and this word, exonerated. So exonerated in the sense that they, their sins are so completely dealt with, it is as if they never sinned. This is amazing, but God has that ability. And as we who understand the gospel, that is why Jesus Christ came and died on the cross, we see how he did it. God put our sin and the sins of all humanity onto his son who paid the price for those sins. Thus, he now offers all people everywhere pardon for their sins, forgiveness for their sins, exoneration. Their slate can be wiped completely clean as if they'd never sinned in the eyes of God. So this is amazing. But God has that ability. God also exclusively has the ability to judge sinners. Only God, who alone is sinless and is the epitome of holiness, can judge those who have sinned. And, and the reason is very simple. Only the one who is offended can forgive the offender. And sin is an offense against God. And by the way, when you, you commit a, a crime... The measure of that crime, which happens all the time in a, a court of law, the measure of that crime is, is determined by the, 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 the gravity of what you've done. So, you know, if someone steals a, uh, a 50 cent chupa chup or something like that from a supermarket, the, the, the penalty for that is going to be commensurate to the, to the crime. 
which I'm not sure what it would be, maybe a fine. But it certainly wouldn't be life in prison, not in our judgment of, of uh, those sorts of things anyway, not in, the, not in our Western liberal democracy it wouldn't. But when someone sins against the eternal God, the consequences are eternal because of the gravity. It's not the same as stealing a 50-cent lolly from a supermarket. Only God, who is sinless, he has never sinned, is the, and he is the epitome, that is the ultimate example of holiness, and we'll define that word a bit later, can judge those who have sinned. So this is a, an exclusive ability of God. Now added to this, God has three unmatched and eternal aspects to his character, I mentioned I was going to talk about holiness. Well, here we go. Holiness. God has unmatched holiness. He is, he is good in absolutely every respect. And only God is, in this word, absolutely. He is absolutely good in every respect. God cannot be anything other than good. Now, I know that there are some people who have this concept that God has done wrong by them. And I think this simply portrays or reveals that you have a wrong concept of who God is and you have a wrong concept of why you're, why you're on this planet, why, you're, why you have breath in your lungs, why you have a pulse running through your bloodstream. To think that the world revolves around you is, is the wrong way of looking at life. And we can be absolutely certain that God is absolutely good in every respect and he always does what is good. Now, on a side note to this, there may be some, some disaster, some tragedy that happens. There may be some, shall we say, evil that happens, whether it be natural evil, moral evil, an evil perpetrated by someone else. And we may well wonder, as I have, why did God allow that? Why did God allow that? And while we may never on this side of eternity be able to always answer that question, we can be absolutely certain that God is always good. He is always good. He never does wrong. He can never do wrong. Everything he does is for a good reason. And this is what I, I think makes Christianity, the message of the gospel, offer so much hope that in a world where there does seem to be some pretty senseless things that happen. But here we have this truth that God is holy, which means he is absolutely good and he can only do good. Psalm 99 verse 9 says, Exalt the Lord our God and worship at his holy mountain, for the Lord our God is holy. Uh, we can notice there that it describes God dwelling on a mountain and it's it's interesting we haven't got time to look at it now but it's interesting how often the Bible describes that that communion with God that intimacy that connection with God occurring either on a mountain or in a garden and arguably when God created Eden it was a mountaintop garden and that's when God and man walked together the, the next exclusive thing about God is wisdom. This is, I think, again, super important. God 
exercises his freedom to make the wisest decisions. Now, this counters the idea that God is, is someone who set creation off in motion and then just left it, like a, like a watchmaker makes a, a watch or a clock and it just ticks down and, and he's, he's just letting the world just run its course. That's not the way the Bible describes God. God exercises his freedom to make the wisest choices. So God has the freedom to do this or to do that. And the thing that determines if it's this or that is which is wisest. So he's holy, which means he's ultimately good. And he's also ultimate wisdom. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 24, Paul writing to the Corinthians, he says, But to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. So the wisdom of God was embodied in Jesus Christ. Writing again on the same topic to the Colossians this time, in chapter 2 and verse 3, Paul says this, In whom, that is, in Christ, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. The, the other thing that makes, well, that is absolutely unique to God in its fullest extent is love. Only God can love the way he loves. God is the ultimate expression of love. God is ultimate love. And he always desires everyone's best and their highest good. Perhaps if you're younger, you may not appreciate this, but there will be things that happen to you in life that will cause you to wonder, how could this be the, the outworking of a, of a good, loving God? How is this possible? And for those of us that have lived a few years, we've, we're a bit seasoned by life. We've come to appreciate that those moments, those things that we thought were just the end of our life, the, the thing that, that robbed us of, of so much of the, the hope and potential that we had, when we look back on them, we go, and not always, but we can look back on some of these moments and go, you know what? Thank God that happened. Thank God that happened. That, if that hadn't happened, I wouldn't have, you know, insert really, really good thing that happened here. And I've heard people such as uh, Johnny uh, Erickson Tata, who at the age of 17 dived into um, a, a, a body of water, I think it was down at the coast, in, uh, just off Maryland, or, or yeah, off Maryland. And, and the water was, uh, was had, the tide had gone out more than she realised, and... She ended up breaking her neck, and from that point on, at the age of 17, um, she was left a quadriplegic. And she was bitter, months and months on end, bit angry toward God, and really just suicidal, and, and, and it was just terrible. But if you go and Google Johnny Erickson Tata, you would see that she ended up living a very, very fulfilled life and, and continues to do so. And she has had all kinds of health battles as a result of being a quadriplegic. But she said in the early years of her life when she was confined to that wheelchair that she could, she could only manoeuvre by you know, the, the smallest uh, motion that she had in her fingers. Um, she was so angry. But then over time... She surrendered her heart, her mind, her life to God. 
And she says, there's not a day that goes by now when I don't thank God for this chair. It's an amazing story and you may want to have a look at her life because it's incredibly inspirational. God is love. In 1 John chapter 4, verse 8, anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. Notice that it doesn't say God is loving. It actually says God is love. His very essence is love. Everything he does is an expression of his love. And so even when we think that we're, we're being ravaged and attacked by the enemy of our soul, ultimately God is still good, he's still holy, he's still all-powerful, and he is still the God who is love. He is able to work all things together for our good. This is why it's really important to start this topic looking at the, the origin of the forces of evil by, by being reminded who is this God that we love and worship. In Romans chapter 1 and verse 19, I just wanted to just point out from a couple of these, these scriptures here that when God began to create, everything I've just told you about God will, was to be reflected in what he created, especially the beings he created. So it says in Romans chapter 1 verse 19, For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes. And we've just been looking at his attributes. For his invisible attributes, namely, and here's one of them, his eternal power. So we, we mentioned that. His divine nature, divine, he's the creator, having been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So the Apostle Paul, writing to the Corinthians, says that everything God created is a reflection of who he is. And we can determine, we can, we can perceive his eternal power, his divine nature from what he's created. That, that Paul says, the, the last part of verse 20, so they are without excuse. So I want to point out that when God created, all of creation reflects him in some way. When he created heavenly creatures, those creatures, the angels, we looked at that in our last session, those heavenly creatures were created to partially reflect him. Partially reflect him. So these heavenly creatures were partially reflecting God. And, and this is, again, important. So they, they didn't fully reflect him, but the attributes that we've just looked at, they reflected. So these creatures, these heavenly creatures that we generally refer to as angels, and I'll refer to them either as God's heavenly family or heavenly beings, these creatures were created with the capacity to think, to communicate, and to make decisions. So we just saw that, that these are the, some of the attributes of God. God has the capacity to think and make a decision. He has the capacity to communicate with people, which again is, is what we call abstract. And in, in what I mean by that is that words, as I speak to you, I, I, I trust you can understand what I'm saying. And if you can't, then we have the ability for me to explain to you what I'm saying. And perhaps if I say something now in this, this presentation that you, that you don't get, you have the opportunity to ask a question. If you're listening by radio now, if you're listening over the internet, if you're watching our live stream right now, you have the ability to send a message to me. We can communicate. And these heavenly beings had the God-given ability to communicate. 
So these creatures were also designed to reflect the, the attributes that God had as well. So they were designed to be holy. They were to reflect their creator who, who is holy. That means they were to live godly, righteous and virtuous life, a virtuous life as, as angelic beings. Virtuous, by the way, uh, virtue means good. So they were, they were to live good. They were to do what is good. Now, these creatures were also designed. Here's another attribute of God that they were to reflect. These creatures were designed to be wise. So I've, I've got the little, you'll see on the screen there underneath, I've got these two words, volitional, which means they were free to choose this or that. And God expected them to use the wisdom that he had endowed them with. And they were also expected to reject what was wrong and to embrace what is right. That's called being discerning. I love the definition that Charles Spurgeon put on the word discerning. He said discerning is not just seeing the difference between right and wrong. The great preacher said discerning is the ability to distinguish between right and nearly right. And God endowed these heavenly creatures with that ability. He also endowed these heavenly creatures with the ability to love. They were designed to love. Now, what, what does love look like? I think we live in a culture right now where the concept of love is very, very confused. It's very mixed up. And ironically, as more people redefine that word love to mean happiness or something like happiness, they end up not finding love. But the kind of love that the Bible talks about is the kind of love that God shows. Amazingly, God serves. The greatest example of God serving was when he became man and he washed feet. He fed people. He did things to serve others. He was reflecting his father. Love in a relationship involves serving someone. It involves helping and it involves strengthening. And angels were, were designed to, to do that. And when God created people, as we'll see in a moment, it was a kind of a turning point in the epoch in the history of the universe, that there were times when Jesus, in fact, it says after he had been out and exchanged uh, with the, the devil in the wilderness, uh, the, where the devil tried to tempt him, after that, the devil left him and angels came to Jesus and it says they strengthened him. I think we can strengthen people too. We can strengthen people by our words, by our presence, by serving and by help. These are the things that these angelic creatures were designed to do. Now some of these creatures were designed to be, now this is going to be a, a, perhaps a new concept for people. They were designed to be council members of God's divine council. Now, divine counsel Andrew where are you getting that from well I'm glad you ask we, we read in Job chapter 15 verse 8 have you listened in the counsel of God and do you limit wisdom to yourself Job asks so there's an introduction to this concept the counsel of God which account in this sense that counsel means exactly what it means in in our world it's a group of beings a group of people a group of of peers it's a group of those people but in the divine council the created beings were not the same as god i hope i've made that clear they were not 
possessing these these exclusively divine attributes of eternality, omnipresence, omniscience, and so on. But God chose some of them to come into counsel with him so that they would help him to rule the universe. And you might go, well, Andrew, where are you getting this from? Well, again, I'm, I'm glad you asked. Because Psalm 82 verse 1 says this, God has taken his place in the divine council. This is Psalm 82 verse 1. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. Now, interestingly, I want to point this out in a moment. That word gods is the Hebrew word Elohim. Elohim. And it's translated gods there. And uh, essentially, I'm going to say this is divinely appointed beings. So they're not the same as the God. And God is certainly a member of his own council. But there are other beings who were divinely appointed. And the English, the way it's rendered here in English is that God has the divine council. And, in, and there are what the English translates that Hebrew word, gods in the midst. Psalm 89, verse 7, it repeats this same concept again. A God greatly to be feared in the council of the holy ones and awesome above all who are around him. So the, member, the members of the divine council, that Hebrew word is Elohim, E-L-O-H-I-M. It's, it's transliterated into English. Now it's been assumed by modern scholars that the term Elohim Elohim, was an exclusive descriptor of Yahweh. In other words, only Yahweh was Elohim, Elohim, Yahweh. And of course, that many scholars note that in chapter 1, it describes Elohim of Genesis, chapter 1 of Genesis. And in chapter 2, it talks about God, the same God who just created, as, as being referred to as Yahweh. What's going on there? Well, this is why it's led scholars to believe that Elohim and Yahweh are actually synonyms. And I'm going to suggest to you that based on the latest scholarship, that, that is, that's not true. Elohim was, a, was anyone who was a member of the divine council of God. Of course God was a member of that council, but there were other beings as well. So while Yahweh was obviously the regent that is the, the monarch, the king, within, the, within that council, the term Elohim, which is translated into English as gods, which may be an unhelpful way to translate that word, is also used to denote other members of the council. So it seems that Yahweh's plans to create special image bearers was discussed among the council members. In other words, in this divine council, God set about to talk about i'm going to create special image bearers and so that desire to create special image bearers we read in genesis 1 26 then god elohim said let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth Genesis 1.27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. 
So we, can, we will see, and if we had the time, we would look at it a little bit more deeply, that that's an overview of what God did. Then we go into Genesis 2 and we get a little bit more specific. We see that God created Adam first. There was some time lapse between him then creating the woman who, by the way, when God created the man, he gave him that, that mandate to go and examine the animals, take dominion over them by naming them. And in Genesis chapter 2, when we see God created the woman, she was not named. It was only after Adam had, and his wife, the, the woman, the Hebrew word is Isha, only after they had fallen into sin did Adam take dominion over her and he named her. We read that in Genesis chapter 3, verse 20. But I'm jumping ahead in this story a bit. It's, it's clear that when God created mankind and he, he created this, this physical dimension that we live in, that he also assigned certain members of the divine council with the ability to interact physically with his new image bearers. And so these new image bearers had, were given the ability to interact physically with the, 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 the image bearers on, on earth. And these council members would serve as watchers to assist the new imagers identify the earth. In other words, make the whole earth like Eden. So God's, God planted the garden. He brought man originally into it. He then created the woman and they were both in that garden, Eden. And it, it is as, and we, we read in uh, other parts of the scripture that that mountaintop garden, because it was on a mountain, because we, we see that in Genesis chapter 2 it describes rivers flowing out of it. And rivers don't generally flow uphill, they flow downhill. So Eden must have had some elevation. So there, and there we have the picture of God being uh, communing with man, mountaintop, and in a garden. Now, these divine council members who were given the ability to physically interact with the new images were, were, were identified by Yahweh as the sons of God. They had a very special role to assist mankind to, to do what they were, were created to do, to identify the earth and take dominion over God's creation and reflect him in this dimension to all people. So as humankind spread over the earth, these sons of God were supposed to oversee the establishing of nations. We read about that in Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 8, which says, When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance... When he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. Do you get that? He fixed the borders of the peoples. He divided mankind into nations and he did it according to the number of the sons of God. Now, there's some scholars who say, oh, that must be referring to, to uh, Israel uh, around the, 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 the sons of Israel. But it can't be that. As we look at the context there, it's talking about that time of Babel, um, the Tower of Babel. So <clears throat> perhaps it's a description of their role, these heavenly creatures who could physically transform themselves into human-like beings, which, which and it seems they had human-like functions as well. They could eat, they, could, uh, they had the ability to process food and so on. We read about that in other passages of scriptures. So they were known as the Watchers. 
And this is the term found in Daniel chapter 4, verse 17. It occurs three times uh, in Daniel chapter 4. It says this. Now, this is Daniel referring to the judgment on Nebuchadnezzar. The sentence is by the decree of the watchers. The decision by the word of the holy ones to the end that the living may know that the most high rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. So you see there, it's by decree of the watchers, by the decision of the holy ones. So this means that, that these watcher angels or watcher heavenly beings could act on God's behalf and, and exercise judgment that they knew would bring glory to God, the Most High, it says there. Now, interestingly, there's a fair bit of Jewish tradition around this concept of watcher angels. In fact, according to the book of First Enoch, which was a book that, that was, uh, it came out, it was written, it was believed to be oral tradition that was written down around about 250 BC. And that's, that's what's called the intertestamental periods. In other words, between the end of the Old Testament and the start of the New Testament, these books came out. And the book of First Enoch is interesting because it's quoted by Jesus in Matthew chapter 24. It's quoted by the writer to the Hebrews. It's quoted uh, in Second Peter. And in Jude verse 9, he actually tells us that he's quoting from it. So it was a book that informed the thinking of the, of the original New Testament writers. Now, according to this book, First Enoch, one of these watcher angels, Azazel, it was his name, he became enraged with envy. His pride was hurt when he saw that God created the Isha, the woman. Now, you think, this angel, this glorious angel who was later described in the book of Ezekiel as radiating great light. This, this angel, when he saw that God created the, the man, he, he wasn't upset. He, he didn't tempt Adam. I mean, what Adam could have been examining these creatures for quite a while, these animals, the, the creatures of, of uh, the Mesopotamian Valley around Eden. Why didn't, why didn't he tempt Adam? Well, he, he didn't. The record is that he, he just didn't. The, the temptation came when the woman, the Isha, was created. And so we see there that there was something about the woman. What was it about the woman that was different to the man? What was it that God had to take out of the man and give the physical capacity in a being for what he took out of Adam? Uh, that's the Hebrew word for man. Well, whatever it was, and I think we can readily see what it was, the woman, the Isha, had a body that was designed to interact with her spirit that could produce children. Now, of course, she needed the man, but the point was every time that woman had the ability to conceive and produce a new human life let me repeat that a new image bearer of god's image and let me repeat it again someone in the image of god who had an immortal soul an immortal spirit 
she was doing something. Every time she could do that, she was doing something that only one other being in the universe could do, and that was God. She was given a special ability to create immortal spirit. Add into that, in the image of God. And this enraged Azazel. Now we find that in the, some of the other pseudepigraphal writings. So in other words, it's Jewish tradition that this was the cause of the origin of the devil, Satan, whose name was Azazel originally. Now you might think, where are you getting this Azazel? Are you telling me that we should take these things and not in the Bible and believe them? Well, not necessarily. I think we should weigh them up. And if we weigh them up, we read this in Leviticus chapter 16 and verse 10, which you will find four references to Azazel being associated with evil and death. So it's, this is referring to the Day of Atonement, where two goats come into the tabernacle, the, the lot is cast, the one that gets the short straw is slain, its blood splatters over the other goat. They then open the, the curtain type of uh, gate at the front of the tabernacle and that goat runs out into the wilderness. So that tabernacle, which means a tent, was, was uh, set up in the wilderness. And it says this, But the goat on which the lot fell for Azazel shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement over it, that it may be sent away into the wilderness to Azazel. So you'll see there's another three references to Azazel in verse 8 and I think down verse 24, verse 26 of Leviticus 16. So there we have a reference to this creature that is referred to in First Enoch and referred to in the, uh, some of the other pseudepigraphal, pseudepigraphal meaning that it's, it, it bears the name of an author who could not have written it. And we shouldn't be too worried about that as Christians because we actually have that in our Bible as well. For example, we have First uh, Samuel, and in First Samuel it describes Samuel dying. So Samuel clearly couldn't have written Second Samuel. Someone wrote it, but it bears Samuel's name, just as a by the way. So what we see is that Azazel's rebellion when he tempted the woman to spite God because his pride was so hurt by God making this woman greater than him. It, it, we see that this was the first of three angelic falls. And Azazel's rebellion is, is the first of these three. And it's, it's alluded to in the, 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 uh, the Old Testament as well. So we see the, the three falls of the watcher angelic creatures was, number one, Azazel's rebellion. And then secondly, uh, in Genesis chapter 6, verse 2, it describes the sons of God. And then in the third incident, we see in Genesis chapter 11, we see that it's the watcher angels the watcher angels so there's the three rebellions the three rebellions of these watcher creatures now this is significant because what we're now going to see is where jewish tradition interplays with this jewish tradition regards azazel as the one who became known as satan the devil now by the way 
that the word Satan does not occur in the Old Testament as a proper name. It's only in the New Testament. The word Satan means one who opposes. And it doesn't necessarily mean that they're a, a bad person. Uh, it could be in a court of law where someone's giving the counter-argument. In fact, we read about that in one book in the, the Old Testament where there is a Satan. He is the Satan, not by name. It's, it's his role. Then, so Jewish tradition sees that, that this Azazel became known eventually as Satan and the devil. The devil. And so Jewish tradition also regards the fallen watchers who sired the giants described as the Nephilim in Genesis chapter 6, verse 2, as evil spirits. And then Jewish tradition regards the rebellious watchers at Babel, the Tower of Babel, uh, the Tower of Babel, where they took worship to themselves. <clears throat> they wanted people to worship them. And this is where we read in Genesis chapter 32, verse 8, that God had assigned these beings to be like princes over nations. And again, you might go, well, where are you getting that from the Bible? Well, again, we can see that in, for example, Daniel chapter 10 and verse 20, which says this. Then he said, this is Gabriel speaking to him, by the way. Do you know why I've come to you? But now I will return to fight against the prince of Persia. And when I go out, behold, the prince of Greece will come. Huh? What are these princes? Well, this is Gabriel talking. And he's talking about angelic princes who are going to fight against him. So verse 21, Daniel chapter 10, verse 21. But I will tell you what is inscribed in the book of truth. There is none who contends by my side against these except Michael, your prince. So it says here that the prince, the, the angelic creature assigned to watch over the land of Israel, his name was Michael. So Jewish tradition regards the most powerful of the rebellious watchers being bound. So the ones in Genesis chapter 6, they were, they were bound. It's described in First Enoch. And they were imprisoned at Mount Hermon. Now we've already looked at Jesus going to Mount Hermon just before he went to the cross. So these beings, they somehow, and I don't, I don't understand it, but we read in Scripture that these watcher angels were assigned a territorial boundary, a national boundary. And for these who were uh, the ones who rebelled to take worship to themselves, they were bound in Genesis chapter 6 and then in Genesis chapter 11. They were bound and imprisoned at Mount Hermon. So I suspect that the way they were bound was to be bound means that they were restricted from doing some of the things that they could do. And I would almost certainly think that involved their ability to shape shift, we might say, as humans, was removed from them. And they were unable to do that. They were unable to physically interact with the, the physical realm. Now, there's some common misunderstandings about this. So what we're seeing here is that we have these evil spirits that we have the, the Satan identified as Azazel, we have the evil 
spirits. That was these uh, watcher creatures who rebelled by siring Nephilim. And of course, that resulted in the flood. And God imprisoned some of those, but he also uh, had those beings uh, confined in some way, restricted in some way. But they are referred to as principalities and powers, especially the ones where God said these are too powerful. So we've seen in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4, that it describes in this abstract language that God confined many of those in chains in Tartarus. So, uh, and, and eventually, we've seen already that Christ came at his ascension and took those who were held in captivity to a permanent captivity. That's why it says in Ephesians 4, he led those captives out of captivity and gave gifts to men. Now, there's some, look, let's just bring this to a close. I'm just pointing out that the evil spirits were the fallen watch angels, Genesis chapter 6 and Genesis 11. The Nephilim who, who were destroyed in the flood, their, their bodies were destroyed. But physically, they, they, although physically they were, they were destroyed, they were now disembodied spirits. And according to First Enoch, they are demons. They are the demons. And then we have these uh, fallen watcher angels again at Genesis 11, which explains why after Genesis 6, we see accounts in the text of, of this happening again, where they sired more giants and God dealt with them as well. But these are the principalities and powers that Paul refers to being in opposition to him, the church and the gospel and the cause of Christ. But as we hopefully we will see in our next installment that Christ has now done something that has completely, completely won the victory against these forces of darkness. So just before we finish, I just want to have a look at a common misunderstanding of what most people take for granted as the origin of Satan and the origin of demons. And it's based on Revelation chapter 12. So I just want to bring this to a close by looking at this. I just want to read nine verses out of Revelation chapter 12, which says, And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. So wherever you read sun, moon, and stars, it's nearly always in some way referring to Israel. So who is this woman? Well, sometimes we refer to the, a part as representing the whole. And in this instance, I'm going to suggest to you this is the one who was a virgin when she conceived Christ. Now, how do I get that? Well, context. Let's read on. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that she bore her child, uh, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. Now, just appreciate this. What we're seeing here is a, a quick overview of the birth of Christ, the mission of Christ, the ascension, uh, resurrection and ascension of Christ. How do we get that? Well, verse 5, She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all nations with a rod of iron. 
but her child was caught up to God and to his throne. So in a sweeping statement, it's, it said um, the Virgin Mary gave birth to a son who wrought redemption by his death on the cross, who rose from the dead and ascended back to his father. And it goes on, verse 6, And the woman fled into the wilderness where she, was, uh, where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. Verse 7, now there was war in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. Now, I just want to point out, this fight described between Michael, whom we've already seen, is the angel signed by God to watch over the territory of the land of Israel. He's now fighting the dragon. Now, the question I've got here is, when is this happening in the sequence of events? that's described here in Revelation chapter 12. It's happening after Christ has died on the cross, risen from the dead, and ascended back to his Father. Then war broke out in heaven. But, verse 8, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any room for them in heaven. So it says, and the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated. Verse 9 and the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan. Now, that's the only place where we associate the serpent with Satan, by the way. Uh, and it, it takes until the last book of the Bible to get there, which is, an, which is just amazing. And it goes on, the deceiver of the whole world, he was thrown down to earth and his angels were thrown down with him. Now, if you can appreciate that the watcher angels in cahoots with uh, the, the one who was known as Azazel, they are the forces who were, who were fighting against the, the plan of God. But they were defeated and they were thrown down. In other words, that something has happened to them because Christ has ascended and they are less powerful than they were. Now, this is really important. As I just bring this to a close, I think we really need to appreciate this and I hope we get it. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 4, speaking of what Christ did, because in that sweeping statement in about verse 4 or 5, where it says that Christ died and then he ascended to his Father, just a sweeping statement. But what we may not appreciate in this statement is the, the absolute declaration that the forces of darkness have been defeated. And so it says this in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. So in essence, it's describing the exact events of Revelation 12 that we just read. And it goes on, it says this, that through death, no, Christ died, he might destroy the one who has the power of death. Oh, who's that? Well, it says, that is the devil. So we see that Christ, when he came into our world and he took on human flesh, and he died on the cross, and then he rose again from the dead, and then he ascended to his Father. He defeated, in fact it says here, he has destroyed the one who has the power of death. And this is the confidence that we have. Church, we need to get it. We need to get it big time. Christ is Lord. He is ruling and reigning. He has a plan. The plan is going exactly the way he wants. And, and that plan will be realized when we, the church, have fulfilled his redemptive plan in the earth. 
And we know this, that as much as the enemy is now limited in his power because he's been defeated, he is delaying the inevitable by doing everything he can from distracting us from fulfilling our mission. So that's why it's so important for us as the church to be the church, to evangelize, to reach out, to do what we can. Because we serve a risen Savior, the one who is now Lord of lords and King of kings, and he has defeated the devil. And we need to get that. Now, perhaps you have been living in, in the fear of death, as it says here. That is a devilish thing. Perhaps you have been scared of the, what the enemy might do to you, what the enemy can do into your head, your thought life. But we have a Savior who can set you free. We take captive every thought that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, the Bible says. And that's because the devil's only strategy now is to mess with your head. And Christ has come to renew your mind, to give you a new way of looking at life. And so I want to pray for you now. Perhaps you've never surrendered your life to Christ. I want to invite you to do that right now. Perhaps you've never received God's offer of forgiveness from your sins, pardon from your sins. I want to help you find peace with God right now by being forgiven. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter who you've done it with. It doesn't matter who knows what you've done. Right now, in this moment, listen to me, wherever you are, in your car, in your home, in your lounge room, in your garage, out walking, wherever you're listening to this, if you're listening to this by podcast, by YouTube, on live on radio right now, you can know peace with God. It doesn't start by climbing a mountain. It doesn't start by shaving your head. It doesn't start by going on some pilgrimage. You can meet with God right now and have your sins forgiven. You are not a million miles away from God. You are just one prayer away. One prayer. A prayer that cries from your heart, God, forgive me. I thank you that you sent Jesus to die on the cross for my sin in my place that I could be forgiven by you. You offer it. I receive it and say, thank you. Please forgive me. Come into my life and help me to live for you. I pray. Amen, which means let it be. Friend, it doesn't matter what you've done, who you've done it with, who knows what you've done. If you pray a prayer like that from your heart, you can be forgiven. And we would love to help you on your journey with Christ. Contact us. We would love to get a Bible to you. We would love to get some material to help you on your journey. You can contact us on the website, the contact page at findingtruthmatters.org. If you'd like to obtain a CD copy or premium download of tonight's discussion, please go to our website, findingtruthmatters.org, and select the Darkness Series Part 6 from our online store. You can also find the podcast by subscribing to Finding Truth Matters on iTunes, Spotify or SoundCloud. As we've heard tonight, angels and demons are words we use to group together the good guys and the bad guys of the spiritual realm, but it's a little more complex than that. Should we be fearful? No. God remains the ultimate authority over the cosmos and the spiritual realm. More from Dr. Corbett on that next week. Dr. Corbett is pastor of Lagana Christian Church and president of ICI Theological College Australia. Thank you for joining us. We look forward to meeting with you again at the same time next week for another Finding Truth Matters.